Welcome to Life from Plato's Cave. My name is Mario Veen. When we think of Plato's prisoners in the cave, can we really say that they experience life? They do not experience the cave at all, only the shadows. If they experience something, it's indirectly. Anything that is not expressed in the language of the shadows does not make sense to them. Another way of saying this is that their experience depends on the symbolic order in which they live. We often think of experience as something very direct and raw. But if we take Plato's allegory seriously, our experience is mediated. In Plato's allegory, the release of the prisoner from his situation in which everything makes sense is involuntary. They are forced to stand up and turn around and their eyes hurt. They are dragged upwards. Plato writes that if they would get a chance, they would run back to their old seat. And can you blame them? But imagine if they did. They would be traumatized. They would be unable to make sense of their experience, if you can even call it that. And yet they would be unable to forget it as well. They would have to live with two realities at once. The reality of what they have witnessed and the reality of the society that they return back into. Perhaps they would find a way, but that's for another episode. In the previous episode about geology, we spoke about big numbers that we cannot make sense of, such as the age of the earth, four and a half billion years old. I can understand this number somehow, and yet it is abstract. It has no real meaning to me. Let me tell you another number, six million. That is the estimated number of Jews that died in the Holocaust, and many millions more if we count all Holocaust victims. This number makes no sense to me. It is unimaginable. And yet it happened. And there are other events in the past and in the present where unimaginable amounts of human beings died because of, well, because of other human beings. It happened, and it happens, and we cannot ignore it. But I think that 76 years after the Holocaust, we can still hardly integrate it into our cultural memory, into our stories, our symbolic order. In the allegory of the cave, Plato speaks about someone who sees the true forms, the ideas and the ideals. Well, across history there have been so many people who claim to have seen these ideas and that they have the right to destroy anything that, in their opinion, did not conform to them. They had a clear idea about the way the world should be, which identities have the right to exist and which do not, which ways of being are better than others. The philosopher Adorno, himself a Holocaust survivor, said that this real event shattered the idealistic way in which some philosophers and politicians had approached identity. He wrote that our metaphysical faculty is paralyzed because actual events have shattered the basis on which speculative metaphysical thought could be reconciled with experience. That in the concentration camps it was no longer an individual who died, but a specimen. For me personally, as someone living in the Netherlands, the Holocaust is a cultural trauma, 
that I have to come to terms with. For you, it may not be that. It may be something else. It may be the effects of slavery or the Armenian genocide or the cultural genocide that is happening right now in Tibet. Or it may be something more individual, such as being a victim of a crime or something else that happened to you. What can we in our society, in our cave, do to create an environment in which traumatized people can make sense of their trauma? Today I will speak with Ernst van Alve, who studied the relationship between experience and trauma by looking very closely at, among other things, the Holocaust, art and testimonies of Holocaust survivors. Ernst calls trauma filled experience. Studying trauma also shows that, in fact, the experience we have every day are always mediated. What this means we will see later. Ernst van Alve is professor of literary studies at Universiteit Leiden. His publications include Shame and Masculinity, Filled Images, Photography and its Counterpractices, Staging the Archive, Art and Photography in the Age of New Media, and today we will speak especially about his book Caught by History, Holocaust Effects in Contemporary Art, Literature and Theory. Ernst was so kind to make an older version of this chapter that we will discuss today available. It is called Symptoms of Discursivity and I will provide a link in the description below where you can download it. Ernst, thank you for speaking with me this morning. I'm very happy that you invited me and it's an honor for me to be a part of this. We're going to speak about experience and trauma and memory in general. But you did research on a specific and a very extreme case of both a personal and collective trauma, which is the Holocaust. So in your book, Caught by History, you examine, among other things, testimonies of the Holocaust survivors. And I have to admit that even reading about these horrible events and how they speak about that, it had an actual emotional impact on me. It's not, you know, you don't do it for pleasure. You don't read these things for pleasure. I think we all agree it's an important topic, but I wonder why did you focus, at least in this book and at the, the work that you did at the time, why did you choose to focus on the Holocaust? And how do you deal with, um, yeah, reading these horrible stories? How do you deal with that on an emotional level? When I started to work on uh, Holocaust, and Holocaust uh, representation, imagination, and so on. Uh, I had worked for a very long time on uh, postmodernism and post-structuralism. And especially in the Netherlands, there was a very negative uh, yeah, opinion about uh, postmodernism. And it was, for instance, uh, the what was it, Carol Peters, a uh, reviewer for the uh, Vrij Nederland, and was all, all the time writing very critically about postmodernism, because according to him, he reduced postmodernism as a complete misunderstanding to the idea that everything is text and there is no reality. So, um, and he even wrote at a certain moment, so uh, the Holocaust is only a fiction created by texts. Mm. And I think that's just complete nonsense. But for me, it was also a kind of challenge, this complete misunderstanding about the implications of postmodernism and uh, post-structuralism. 
I decided then to, to write after I had done my dissertation and so to do a research on uh, the Holocaust from a post-structuralist perspective. And it should be clear from page one that uh, uh, this kind of research has nothing to do with Holocaust denial. Then another thing which I was confronted with, because there were also personal reasons for me why I was interested in the Holocaust, but yeah, those were not really relevant. But uh, I grew up in the 1960s, 70s, and uh, in Holocaust studies, it, it turns out, there is a very strong uh, division between uh, history and the imaginative. So everything which is imaginative, which is fictional or in relation to art, is suspect. Yeah. Whereas uh, everything should be historical. Eh? because uh, So that's why testimonies, diaries, documentaries, eh, they can be trusted or archives. But the moment that the imagination comes in, uh, uh, that is suspect. So there's a very strong binary opposition in that field between uh, the real and and, the historical and uh, versus the imaginative. Because there have been some films about the Holocaust, like uh, the Spielberg film. Schindler's List, Schindler's indeed. List, uh, yeah. uh, people from uh, yeah, in Holocaust studies are they're extremely critical about uh, that film uh, because it is not the truth about reality. It does, yeah. In a way, it's a fiction. And it, also because of its positive ending, uh, suddenly at the end there is color. And no, there is no positive ending for the Holocaust. So uh, this, this show kind of uh, the imagination. So this is a bad film, uh, according to people in that uh, domain. But I became hooked by that past of the Holocaust, not through historical representations, not through documentaries, not through the uh, uh, diary of Anne Frank. And I was just bored. And that's a very bizarre response. I was bored by everything in relation to the Holocaust. For me, my response was, oh, there we go again. I've heard this story so many times. And then I was suddenly hooked by some artworks, not historical artworks. For instance, the work by Anselm Kiefer. So in a way, and that is how I came into that. So my work on uh, Holocaust representation, for instance, in Caught by History, is very much about, uh, I would say, deconstructing this opposition between the historical and the imaginative. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a very important place for the imaginative in order to get people interested in that past. We both live in the Netherlands yeah. and uh, every year, the 4th of May, we remember those who have fallen in, uh, in the yeah. Second World War. And there's always a discussion about how do you keep people interested because, yeah. well, if I speak for myself, my poor grandparents passed away. My grandfather, who, who was the oldest, uh, passed away last year. Yeah. And for me, those are the only, let's say, eyewitnesses around me of what happened there. Yeah. Uh, so there's a discussion about how to keep people involved. And if I hear you, then using the imagination could perhaps be something to do there? 
Yes, indeed, because I think, uh, at least for myself, I became interested and I became hooked by that past through imaginative representations, through yeah. fictions, through artworks, and not through documentaries and uh, or or testimonies or diaries, and uh, uh, because my response to that is. Again and again, I'm reading the same story. Again and again, the same, in a way, with the same moral. And I was just bored by that. And I was not bored by the imaginative representation. And another thing is that for many people, uh, uh, this kind of binary opposition is as it can be translated in uh, history is the real, is the truth, or, or the historical. Whereas, uh, and it is opposed to lie, a lie which is false. And it's bizarre because in our culture, uh, uh, fiction and art is highly respected, but not in the context of the Holocaust. Then suddenly people uh, activate a completely simplistic notion of the imaginative. Mm -hmm. The imaginative is not false, is not a lie. Yeah, but for many people, it is in that field uh, of Holocaust studies. People fall back in a notion of fiction and the imaginative, which is, uh, I would say, not only dated but false in itself. So one of the people who may have been an advocate at that in the first instance was uh, uh, Adorno, who, who was a Holocaust survivor, and he wrote that it's barbaric to write poetry after Auschwitz. How can you even make art after Auschwitz? But he actually uh, came back from that as well. Huh? Yeah. At the moment, uh, he meant something completely else. Yeah. Adorno, uh, when he... Uh, understood that his claim that to write poetry or to read poetry uh, after the Holocaust is barbaric was completely misunderstood. Then he explained it again. And what he, what for him was a problem, not that poetry is fictional or imaginative and that it is lying. No, but for him it was a problem that we can get, and you can say, aesthetic pleasure yeah. out of a poem about such a horrible thing. That, that's very paradoxical. That's, yeah. uh, we, when we read poems of uh, Ceylon, uh, we say, yeah, this is a beautiful poem. What an impressive poem. So we yeah. get aesthetic pleasure out of that. So we, we get ex, uh, aesthetic pleasure out of a text that is about something horrible. And that was the kind of contradiction Adorno was struggling with And his first uh, remark or statement is very critical about the fact that we get aesthetic pleasure, that we are impressed by a poem like that, whereas it is about something horrible. Yeah, I have I have the, the quote here of what, what he said uh, afterwards in uh, Negative Dialectics. I'll, I'll read that one. So he writes, it may have been wrong to say that after Auschwitz, you could no longer write poems. But it is not wrong to raise the last cultural question, whether after Auschwitz you can go on living, especially whether one who escaped by accident, one who by all rights should have been killed, may have been living. And then later, it's obvious that he writes about himself because in, in a few sentences later, he writes that uh, 
uh, he is plagued by dreams that he is no longer living at all, that he was sent to the ovens in 1944. And his whole existence since then has been imaginary, an emanciation of the insane wish of a man killed 20 years earlier. Well, when I read this and when I read the negative dialectics and when I read in the essay Testimonies and the Limits of Representation, you do analyze testimonies uh, no. from people from the Holocaust. So for me, it's very, very difficult to read that. And um, I yeah, you, you need to, to read these uh, the, the testimonies I quote. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because it's one thing to uh, to watch a movie about the Holocaust. It's one thing to remember, oh yeah, this this was important. But it's another thing to read and listen to the actual words yeah. of the people who were there. And how how is that? Yeah. Uh, first of all, you were impressed by uh, my quotations uh, out of testimonies, and but of course these quotations were very selective, and they also had a very uh, particular function. Because I was trying to explain and demonstrate what it is exactly that causes trauma. Yeah. And, and I have four possible reasons for that. But when you, I, I did, for this, to this chapter or this article, I did research in the uh, Fortuna Video Archive at Yale Studies. And it uh, was uh, initiated that archive by uh, Jeffrey Hartman and Dory Laub. And uh, so that was a long time before Spielberg started to do the same. But when you do research in, in an archive like this, you would expect that you are impressed all the time by these testimonies. Yeah. No, the opposite is the case. You okay. are getting bored. There we, we go again. The, the same kind of stories. Yeah. And uh, and it's also, and, and, and there, how do you say, that also touches on uh, the uh, uh, the idea uh, or my notion of trauma as something is traumatic when uh, yeah uh, the symbolic order does not offer uh, yeah, terms concepts uh, narrative plots in a way to experience uh, the event or the situation you are involved in and that uh, also becomes clear in uh, those testimonies, after the after the those people who had survived Auschwitz or other camps, uh, for them it was almost impossible to uh, to tell what they had um, experienced. And all, and not only that, they in the 1950s and 60s, people were not only it was not only difficult to tell, people were also not interested in listening to those people. Yeah. Europe, but also Israel, had to be built and rebuilt, and we needed heroes uh, in those days and not victims. So the, the, those traumatized peoples, they, they were just not interesting to listen to. But then, when was it already in, 19, in the early 1950s? For instance, then suddenly there was this narrative about this famous uh, Nazi doctor, Mengele. Yeah. And uh, so that's provided to also to a lot of uh, Holocaust uh, survivors a narrative to tell, in a way, that what has been yeah, uh, unimaginable and could also not be uh, narrated. 
But, but the funny thing is, and, uh, and especially historians in Holocaust studies have criticized those people, those uh, at, that um, many people, in a way, use that narrative of the Nazi doctor Mengele to tell their own narrative, whereas in many cases it's completely impossible uh, because they were in another concentration camp or uh, yeah, so then you can say this is a false testimony. No, it's not. Um, but in order to tell what they had experienced, they made use of a kind of conventional narrative about this horrible Nazi doctor. That's the only way to, 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 in a way, to testify of the horrible things which happened to them in the camp. Yeah. So, um, and that means, and then we come also, in a way, to, back to the issue of uh, uh, Plato's cave and uh, the allegory. Uh, so experience is never uh, direct in a way even what we experience is a mediation a mediation through and in uh now yeah the, the symbolic order but also the narrative plots which are part of that uh, symbolic order and symbolic order in a way is a, a lacanian uh, term a psychoanalytic uh, term are in a way the rules, the distinctions, the laws, the languages which are used in a specific at a specific moment. And, and when you grow up, you are introduced in that symbolic order. Yeah, but, but, but that means that every experience is already a mediation. You are mediated by the symbolic order in which you grow up. So there is no direct experience is never direct, is never authentic, but it is mediated by the culture you live in. And I think the fact that so many Holocaust survivors who were traumatized had no narratives or no uh, uh, symbolic order, which could be used to, uh, in a way, to tell their stories they suddenly fall back on uh, this conventional narrative of the Nazi doctor. And I think they were not lying when they were doing that or giving a false testimony, but they were, it was the only way to tell their story about something which could not be told. If I just try to summarize your point about experience, you, you studied the Holocaust, you studied uh, t- testimonies and, and art about the Holocaust, but you also want to say something about experience. And if I use the word experience, I just think about, well, I'm sitting here now and and we're speaking and I'm experiencing this. Or yesterday I had a very nice experience when uh, it was very warm and I walked outside in the sun. I think the, the way people normally look at experience is it's something, it's very direct. You experience what you experience. You can, even if you are dreaming or something, you, you, I may be dreaming right now, but I still know that I'm experiencing. So it's very direct and only I can experience what I experience. So if I witness a crime uh, and later the police ask me about what, what happened or if I, a crime happened to me, I just have to basically express what I experienced. I have to express what I remember about this experience. And although we can think about, oh, sometimes his memory is accurate or inaccurate, I can try to remember as best as I can what I experienced and then just tell this to you without any imagination, without any interpretation. 
so that's that's kind of how i think most people would look yeah. at experience right and and Indeed. from what you say is you you uh, that, 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 fundamentally that, that, disagree with that yeah. yeah what you just described that's the kind of common sense idea about uh, experience and then is uh, experience indeed uh, authentic uh, uh, can be not completely accurate but as such it is authentic and not mediated uh, i am saying that every experience or when you partake in a certain event or situation the way to experience it is uh, uh, in a way to mediate it through the symbolic order which means that in a way, every experience is a representation already. Afterwards, afterwards, when you remember it or yeah, yeah, during yeah, the yeah. experience. Uh, when, you are, when you become conscious of it. It's yeah. not only when you remember it, but when you, even when you say to, to yourself, oh, this is a really nice day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's not a memory that is, you're just telling that yourself. And that is already an experience, but that is a mediation. Uh, and uh, uh, and that's but, but uh, why do I need this in a notion of experience as being mediated, as being in a way already a representation that um, and that uh, enables me also to define trauma. And when okay. something cannot be experienced because the symbolic order does not provide uh, narratives, concepts, or whatever, to uh, then it becomes traumatic. And then uh, a trauma, that is something which is in a way, yeah, you can say stored in the body and it's being reenacted. And every time that so uh, uh, a trauma is being reenacted, it comes back in its full immediacy, so not mediated, but in its full immediacy, as if it happens again, in order, in a way, yeah, uh, it is almost a kind of therapeutic process, uh, in the sense that the hope is, or the intention behind the reenactment, that at last that unexperienced event can perhaps be experienced in or after its reenactment. Yeah. But usually it does not work like that. So reenactments happen again and again and again, and it's only in a kind of therapeutic uh, process that the unexperienced event or situation can be at last retrospectively uh, experienced for the first time and that's in the in the testimonies of the holocaust survivors you show that that you say that actually for them it's not the past they they are still there uh when yeah. they describe it they don't speak in the past tense no indeed people who are traumatized live in two presents you can say the the present we are also living in as non-traumatized people and in the present of that past event that is reenacted in the present. And that makes that being traumatized extremely difficult because it undermines uh, temporality, the kind yeah. of conventional temporality of uh, now, past, present, future. And those people are living in several presents at the same time. 
So that's a very important distinction between perhaps how we use trauma in, in everyday language. Maybe we use yeah. trauma like, oh, this was so traumatic in yeah. the sense, oh, this this was so such a horrible thing that happened to me. Yeah, that's the, 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 the big problem of the term trauma nowadays. And it's only every that it has become fashionable to talk about trauma, but usually it doesn't mean anything. When I when I had a flat tire, I can say it was traumatic <laughs> because I had a flat tire. And no, because for me, when I talk about trauma, uh, it is not about something horrible by definition. Because this idea that uh, uh, trauma is when something, when a certain situation or event cannot be mediated or absorbed by the uh, symbolic order, then you can say that usually that is that those moments or situations are, um, now, how do you say that, horrible, huh? like rape, sexual abuse, or something like the Holocaust, and so on. But theoretically, it can also be something beautiful, something mm. which is so great, so beautiful, something so sublime that... Uh, so that's contradictory, uh, not yeah. contradictory from this theoretical perspective, uh, something absolutely beautiful can also be traumatic. And and in uh, many cases of trauma, that's actually sometimes what people struggle with, right? That they yes. that it was a horrible event, and they also experience something like beauty or or something yeah. like that. And how can those two fit together? Yes. Now I'm very curious about how you interpret Plato's allegory. What is for me very interesting about uh, uh, Plato's allegory of the of the cave is that he uses an image, an allegory, in a way uh, to warn about, uh, yeah, you can say, the illusionary status of. Uh, shadows and images it's only behind that there is the light the true knowledge or the true uh and his uh, the world of ideas in in his case in the platonian world but um but, and that is a very interesting paradox how can he so at first uh you can read his uh allegory as completely iconoclastic and you should never trust shadows images so um but i think that is not what because but when he is really uh iconoclastic why would he use an image <laughs> for, with this kind of message so this is not the message of his allegory i think that uh plato uh claims that uh we are in a way always uh that we should never uh, confuse representations and what they mean. And that is, and so but in a way, that's the only world we live in. Eh? These shadows and the puppets and, uh, and the puppets who create the shadows. Yeah, we live in a world of representations. If you speak yeah. about yeah. Uh, experience, it fundamentally has to do with the symbolic order, with yeah. the kind of narrative frames and yeah. the, the representations we have access yeah. to. And, and, and for instance, it's very interesting that in this allegorical narrative, that ultimately had those people who are imprisoned and imprisoned in the cave, 
want to return to that world, to that world of representation. Yeah, because in a way that light or this kind of true knowledge or the real, you can say, the real world, no, that is too much. And yet, But when you translate this into a kind of Lacanian psychoanalytic perspective, it's also interesting to see that the, 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 in uh, uh, Lacan, the, the real is uh, written with a capital, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the real is by definition traumatic. So something we cannot face, something we cannot understand, something which is beyond our understanding outside, but which is also traumatic, yeah. because it cannot be absorbed in the world of representation and of shadows. Yeah, because that's that's what Plato writes is the 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 prisoner who's released. You would think he would be happy that he's liberated, but no, no he has to be dragged up. His eyes hurt. It's yeah. painful, and all he wants to do is run back to yeah. his seat again. Because then you're so in a way that is comparable to the uh, yeah the people uh, who survived uh, uh, Auschwitz and other camps. That is yeah. too traumatic. So that is the real. And uh, and and they, in a way, uh, escape back into the world of representations. That's the only solution. Yeah. The real, with a capital, is outside uh, uh, representation and cannot be mediated. And that I think that is very interesting. How, in a way, uh, Plato's allegory and my notion of trauma indeed have a lot in common. Yeah. But, but when I read your essay, uh, Testimonies and the Limits of Representation, I, I also read a, a kind of a hopeful message in it because you, as you, as you uh, just said before as well, one of the difficulties for the Holocaust survivors is that at the moment they, they, were, uh, they were in the historical event, but they did not experience it because they did not have uh, the symbolic order to, to uh, have this experience. And later, uh, they returned to, uh, let's say, society, or we could compare it to uh, yeah. to a, a veteran returning from the war into society. You describe how they are interviewed, yeah. but even the kind of questions that the interviewer asks is already kind of imposing yeah. a certain narrative. Yeah. Uh, uh, or we could speak of what you just mentioned about Schindler's List, the happy ending yeah. uh, the happy ending in this case would be wow and you were then you were liberated from auschwitz and how did you feel yeah but the in the testimonies you describe that they say well actually that's when it got even worse <laughs> yeah for many people uh, who were completely traumatized it became worse after they were liberated yeah, because while they were still in the camp in a way, the, their whole life was completely one-dimensional, but it could also be understood in a way. But after the liberation, then they got the reenactments, and then they were tortured by uh, whatever, and that made it even worse and less understandable. So then the true hell started after the oh. liberation. That's what many people who survived, uh, yes, testified. Here in the Netherlands, in in recent years, there's been a lot of attention for people from uh, Indonesia who were yeah. imprisoned in uh, Japanese uh, camps, and they uh, returned. They came into a post uh, Second World War Netherlands, and 
they got comments like, well, okay, for you, it was horrible too, but at least you had a little sunshine. Yeah. So uh, I compare it to this uh, this as well. My actually, my grandmother was in one of these camps, and when she uh, spoke about that, she spoke about it. But it was like we were just having an ordinary conversation, and yeah. and she was just throwing in. She never spoke about it, and then sometimes she just threw in a line like, "Oh yeah," and then sometimes somebody gave us some rice through the fence. But no. it didn't have the 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 emotional weight or whatever what I would expect. No. At the same time, now I'm thinking she did find a way to yeah, process it inside of the narrative structure, which maybe now uh, maybe we were just speaking about food or something like that, or being hungry. Yeah, no, indeed. And I think hey, your it was your grandmother, she probably yeah. in a way tried to, now yeah, how do you say that, to, uh, I would say, to, 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 to transform this traumatized uh, temporality into a kind of conventional and normal uh, temporality we all live in. Mm-hmm. So it, I think it is very important also that she talked about this in the past tense instead of the present tense. Ah, okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I started out saying that I did seem to read a uh, hope in your essay because you say it's not yeah. uh, it's not that uh, the Holocaust. Uh, we may think about other traumatic uh, yeah. events. No, it's not one. fundamentally unrepresentable because no. representation can also change. Indeed, uh, representation or this other psychoanalytic term, the the symbolic order, is not static. It's not fixed. And I would say, especially uh, it is in the domain of literature and art, that people try to transform, in a way, the symbolic order. And that can only be done in a very modest uh, way. You cannot just completely overturn the symbolic order. No, that's completely impossible. But still, in a very modest way, you can try to change the... the conventionality of the symbolic order. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that is why I have much more respect for uh, arts and literature than for uh, the historical discipline, because they cannot do that, whereas literature and art can do that. If I think about this, because I did not live through the Second World War, and most of the people who did uh, are are now, yeah, either very old or they will not be with us anymore. No. But are there any situations like? Yeah, I, I cannot even say like that because you make very clear that that the Holocaust it cannot serve as a metaphor or, or anything like that. But are but are there any? Uh, are there people in our society who experience trauma? Um, yes. that we can work on creating maybe a symbolic order or a, a way yeah. in which their stories can be heard. But by the way, I would never say that uh, the, the, the Holocaust cannot be used as a comparison to other yeah, apocalyptic, difficult uh, uh, situation. Yeah, because that's also one of the taboos yeah. uh, in, uh, in Holocaust studies that the Holocaust is unique, Mm -hmm. so you're not allowed to compare it to whatever. And to say that uh, slavery 
was a kind of black holocaust that's completely uh, taboo or whatever. Yeah. Now, first of all, I think that's a complete misunderstanding about uh, uh, what you do when you compare or when you turn something into a metaphor. Uh, When you compare something, you're not claiming that they are identical. And but they have something. And uh, when you compare, there is something what now two entities have in common. But of course, there are many differences. Yeah. And just this kind of cliche, enormous cliche about the Holocaust that the Holocaust was unique. Uh, why exactly? Be more precise. Uh, I think what made the uh, the Holocaust unique is that for the first time. Uh, kind of the, the technology of modernity was used for a genocide. But genocides, we uh, are... Armenian uh, genocide. still have them, and uh, yeah. there comes no end to, uh, uh, to genocides. And, and just then, to, and I even don't know if uh, the, the number of victims in the Holocaust was more than other genocides. Yeah, some, but not all of them. Uh, and so... so when we say um, the Holocaust is unique, uh, you first have to explain unique in what respect, and then you can see uh, if it can be used as an image, as a metaphor, as a comparison. Yeah. And I would, and I think this is such uh, a cliche in uh, and a dogma in the field of Holocaust studies that it makes any, uh, yeah, I would say. Uh, discussion and reflection impossible i mentioned adorno before and adorno was one of the people who tried to i think as i understand it make clear that maybe the the actual events are not like uh taking place uh, as they did back then but the kind of thinking that was behind yeah. it the the way people treat each other yeah. That's actually he he even went so far as to say maybe that's the mod- the current model of our society. For instance, when you compare the uh, that happened in the was it the 1960s and 70s I think the genocide in Cambodia by the Khmer Rouge, yeah, it was also completely industrial and also completely archival like the Holocaust. But when you compare it to the genocide in uh, in Serbia. In Croatia, in uh, much more recently, that genocide, for instance, was a very old-fashioned uh, 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 genocide, not industrial, just people uh, killing each other, or one group killing the other, and so, uh, and that's very interesting. And you you almost need the Holocaust to understand not the fact that there are all genocides, but also how they differ and what the whole, what, what is in a way unique, but also not completely unique about the Holocaust, because the genocide in Cambodia was more in common than in how they differed. Yeah. So the, uh, one, one obvious link would be if I ask, okay, I wonder myself what people might I uh, encounter on the street uh, that, that may have experienced trauma. 
then we can think of refugees who, ca who yeah. came from extreme situations uh, to the Netherlands and they come into a certain uh, narrative as well because they are, yeah. well, <laughs> here's the discourse. I think in many counties it's like, oh, they just come here to take advantage of uh, yeah. our, you know, beautiful Western uh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, indeed. And, uh, and for me, it is also very important that this uh, notion of trauma does not, in a way, legitimize a kind of uh, hierarchy in, uh, uh, no, yeah, this is more horrible than something else, or this is more traumatic than another uh, event was traumatic. And so there is no hierarchy. So uh, uh, in the sense that a very no, yeah, minor experience of just one person can also be understood from this notion of trauma and experience and can be as traumatic as the Holocaust. Trauma has less to do with the event than um, with, I would say, the relationship between the event and the symbolic order and its mediation. So it, it makes it, uh, yeah, to understood these kinds of experiences or better non-experiences, it has nothing to do with the, oh yeah, the scope of the event or the scope of the history. Hmm. So how how do you feel the uh, the Me Too movement in this light? Is there is there a relation to uh, trauma? And I know you you did an exhibition uh, called Shame and Masculinity, which also addresses this. Yeah, this has certainly to do with uh, trauma in the sense that uh, for a very long time. Uh, these kind of experiences of uh, rape, sexual abuse, and, and so on, were completely unspeakable. Indeed, uh, people were silenced about it, but also not only that, that, that there was no space to tell it, but for a very long time, they, yeah, indeed, they, they, they did not really know uh, what they had experienced or and was this something negative was this positive was this how to uh, what, what was it mm. and now the good thing i think about me too when suddenly a lot of women but also men start to tell about these events that suddenly people in a way uh, how, how do you say that they are provided with a kind of narrative which can be used for their own experiences so yes, you can say that the problem of the Me Too uh, situation is, of course, also that a lot of people naja, make use of this kind of naja, Me Too mo moment also just to for financial gain or whatever, just to be <laughs> to create a scandal. But let's just talk about the, the positive uh, effects of the Me Too movement for many people who were victims of these kind of yeah, events or experiences that could not be told or could not be experienced really when they happened. They were too confusing and too, um, that they use now in a way the narratives or the stories that come out as a way, as a mediation for their own untold experiences. And that's very positive, that's healing. And what can we do? And then 
and then I say we because we are both uh, white men. And although, of course, there's also uh, male victims of Me Too. Yeah. In general, it's uh, uh, most of them are uh, women, I think. And we are not directly involved in that. But I, when I read about that, I do feel a sense of responsibility uh, because the, 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 let's say, the conditions that enabled these, um, uh, uh, these events to happen have a lot to do with, uh, well, male privilege, and, and we can yeah. say all those terms. And so when you're, the title of your exhibition is Shame. Is uh, When I hear those things, I do feel a kind of shame, not a personal shame, but uh, yeah. another kind of shame. And then I wonder what what can I do? Yeah, I think that was a difficult question. What can you do? No, at, at least to be uh, uh, to become or to be aware of the fact that you are uh, living in a society where there is still a kind of uh, yeah white or male privilege, and. Uh, so we now the, the, the good thing also is uh, for for white men or for men uh, as such is that uh, usually the, the people who are uh, not living up to the kind of white male standards of uh, uh, of our uh, society are in one way or another shameful, and now because of the Me Too scandals. It are, you can say, especially white men, not only, but <laughs> especially white men who are being made shameful. So I think uh, that when you ask what can we do or what is our responsibility is, I would say, uh, as a white man, it can be very uh, positive and very transformative to experience shame. Because a lot of um, yeah, non-white people, and perhaps also a lot of women, um, especially also again when they are not white, because of course the, the, our society has is changing a lot, and uh, so. But still, to to experience that kind of shame as a white man can be very positive, mm. because many people in our societies experience that on a daily basis because of the white male standards of our society. Mm -hmm. This is also, of course, the kind of um, conversation, the collective conversation in relation to slavery. Yeah. Right. Where, where people say, okay, it was horrible, but it was a long time ago and I didn't yeah. have anything to do with it. So why should I feel uh, no. anything uh, about it? Yeah. In, in this book, Shame and Masculinity, which you just mentioned, there's a very important uh, contribution by uh, Wabi Long. He is a psychoanalyst uh, and academic at the University of Cape Town. And he uh, writes about the South African situation and the uh, very intricate relationship between shame and violence. Mm -hmm. uh, why is the South African society such a violent society? And not only with now, nah, but um, especially uh, black men uh, have grown up in a situation in which they can never, because of their skin, 
live up to the standards of that society. So they grew up uh, in a situation of shame and envy, and that is so extreme that that explains and also results in the kind of extreme violence in that country. Mm -hmm. So how do you work through shame? How do you process shame? Not by just by, uh, how do you say that, the kind of static situation uh, of uh, isolation, because you're always isolated in shame. There is a kind of communication broken with other people. But no, I think it is completely understandable that uh, uh, people try to work through that isolation of shame by becoming extremely violent, and by, by raping their own women, but, but by also by now yeah, violence against white people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the larger, this is such a fascinating topic to, to think about for me, because while well, we started speaking about the Holocaust, we, we speak about different concrete ways, but in the end, um, we try to say something about experience in general and yeah. trauma in general and memory in general by looking at these kind of um, kind of extreme cases. And um, I can say that one in, in um, uh, one of, I think it was the second episode, I shared how I started, <laughs> as I remember, becoming interested in philosophy because uh, I went with my mother to Malaysia and we entered the house of, of uh, her her friends and there was no coat rack. And for me, that was uh, uh, like a, a very strange experience because just because I realized in the Netherlands, every time you enter a house, there's a coat rack, but yeah. what, if that's not the case. What else might not be the case? Yeah. Another, I think, formative experience or something which which shaped me as well is that i was in in uh, denmark uh with my uh, partner at the time and her grandfather was there and it was this huge danish family gathering with uh, i don't know how many children and grandchildren and it was like the room was full of children and grandchildren i was sitting there and she told me the story that her grandfather was actually he escaped the the camp during the second yeah. world war and before he he um, was captured, he was this kind of, you know, young man enjoying life, happy and single. And then after he uh, escaped, he decided, OK, no, I want to marry. I want to have a family and I want to have lots of children. Yeah. And it made me wonder what makes it that for one person to experience or be part of a, an event it's a trauma and for the other person it could be even an instigation or a motivation to change their life or to some people become religious or some people uh yeah change their entire life uh, let me ask the question does everybody experience a trauma at no that's not it so why did some people in the camps experience it as traumatic and others did not. I know it's a big yeah. question, but <laughs> no, no it's, a, it's a very important question. Now, earlier, I said that uh, trauma can never be explained by the extremity of the event. And that's even the case for uh, the Holocaust. Uh, for many people, uh, and probably most people, 
the people who survived, that has been traumatic, but not for everybody. And uh, just people, there are also people who survived and had no major problems after they had survived. And uh, there's also been been research uh, uh, from a a gender uh, perspective. And then it turns out that in a way, men uh, in the concentration camps died faster than women and they were also more traumatized than women. And how can that be? What is, uh, how, how, why is it that many women uh, could cope much more easily, easily with these kind of extreme situations in a concentration camp? Uh, now, one explanation is that, of course, many of the people who entered were Jews and Orthodox Jews. And in those uh, uh, Orthodox uh, societies, the place of women was by definition, now, yeah, how do you say that, uh, completely uh, yeah, below that of men. Their subjectivities were reduced to uh, something not very expensive, not very big. <laughs> And uh, so, but when men and women entered a concentration camp, their subjectivities was reduced to nothing. They were no longer dealt with as real subjects, with responsibility, with freedom, with uh, whatever. And I think that had much more impact on men than on women, Hmm. because their subjectivities in the culture, the orthodox culture they came from, was already... Uh, limited. And I think that explains uh, why uh, in our patriarchal societies, the the egos of men are more inflated than those of women. And especially in those days uh, during the Second World War. Now it is a little bit different. I think there are now especially men that have big problems, young men, uh, because they have no role models or they, they do not know how to live their masculinity uh, anymore and for women young women it is much easier to how do you say that to become a subject than for young men i think Mm. but in during the second world war that was very different and i think it were especially men who had inflated egos and so and that also explains why it was in a way more traumatic for men than for women yeah you you're right even that they had to uh, there's this phrase. Uh, I think it's by you quote someone Lang- Langer. Langer, yeah. The paradoxical killing of the self by the self in order to keep the self alive. Yeah, and that, and especially that part I think was in those days no longer, but in those days for women, especially when they came from an orthodox background, much easier than for men. Yes. Mm. No. Do you know this book called And There Was Light by Jacques Lucéran? No. It's an interesting book by a French resistance fighter no. who was blind uh, since the age of seven. And there's this passage that made me think about this as well. Uh, he actually, it's not about himself, but he describes someone in the camps. He describes the horrible, condi- he was in Buchenwald. And he describes the horrible horrible conditions in the camps and uh, how there was one man who seemingly he was laughing and making jokes and making other people feel better. 
he he reminds me a little bit of this this movie um the beautiful the beautiful life or the yeah. uh, la bella vita yeah yeah la vita bella yeah la vita bella, bella yeah yeah, yeah. when he uh, he asked this man about this uh, how come how uh, how come that you are not uh, yeah how how can you even laugh how can you make jokes and then this man he's he calls him Jeremy he says well for one who knows how to see things are just as they always are. Oh. And later he says that in ordinary life with good eyes, we would have seen the same horrors. We had managed to be happy before. Well, the Nazis had given us a terrible microscope, the camp. This was not a reason to stop living. So for this man, apparently he says, yeah. well, what, what happens now might be an extreme version of something that was actually there uh, yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, and what is so um, beautiful about what, what Mitterrand is his name? Lucerand. Uh, Lucerand, yeah. Uh, what he's what he in a way uh, also implies is that his imaginative way of coping with that reality um, in the camp is as real as the camp itself. Hmm. So he's he's able at that moment yeah. to live in this. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, since you your work uh, on the Holocaust uh, was, I think, from two thousand, the essays from two thousand four, or yeah, something before, like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what are you working on at the moment? Uh, I just finished this book on uh, uh, shame and masculinity, but I'm doing another uh, book and exhibition together with. Uh, uh, half Unroll A, that's the institution, the, the kind of museum gallery in uh, Amsterdam. And that's about productive archiving. Hmm. And in a way, I have uh, published a book on the archive, I think 10 years ago, uh, staging the archive. And uh, yeah, this is a kind of sequel to that uh, project. But the whole my interest in archiving uh, also was a result of uh, Holocaust, uh, my work on the Holocaust. Because I was uh, amazed uh, by the fact that what I told you earlier, that there is this very strong, uh, how do you say, that preference and privilegiation uh, for all kinds of um, historical genres, like uh, in Holocaust studies, the, uh, the documentary, the testimony, the diary, but also the archive. And so the hard, whereas I was confronted, yeah, I think I also wrote about uh, Caught by History uh, already, but also in, especially in that book, Staging uh, the Archive, and there I have a whole chapter, that these kinds of industrial genocides, like the Holocaust, but also uh, the one by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, were big archival machines, mm -hmm. because the master archivist were the Nazis, and they archived people, their belongings, everything. So this complete uh, respect for the archive, I think, is no, it's very dangerous and naive. And uh, in our culture, uh, um, the archive is only seen as a kind of scholarly or scientific tool. And I think that the archive is much more. There's a kind of organization which also defines our thinking. And we also think by uh, making lists, by 
categorizing phenomena by making things, by making collections. So it is not only in, uh, an institution like a museum or a library or a city archive. No, for me, uh, an ar archiving is a mode of thinking. And we uh, comparable to, for instance, uh, telling stories. Yeah, whereas a narrative is always considered to be one of the most symbolic ways of how people make sense of the their life and their futures and, uh, and so and we have also in uh, scholarship many narrative theories to understand uh, the, how do you say that how that works storytelling uh, but uh, we are we know very little about archiving as a mode of thinking and how we make sense of the world by means of archival thinking and that's why I uh, wrote that book, Staging the Archive. And this is this new uh, project, exhibition and book, is called Productive Archiving, and which immediately implies that a lot of archiving is not uh, productive and is even killing. Like deadly in the, in the case of these kind of genocides, which were big archival machines, but also in others. And there are two major problems. Uh, uh, of the archive. An archive has always an inside and a, as an outside. And you see, for instance, now in the last 20 years that people uh, started to uh, make uh, post-colonial archives, queer archives, and so on. And I can understand that there's something possible because those people uh, who were for a long time, in a way, uh, outside the archive, uh, and you are you only exist in a way you only are can be recognized when you're inside the archive so for those people who have been in a way for centuries or decades being outside the archive they want their own archive eh? because yes. it's only then that they exist and a very good example for instance is the artist uh, south african artist santo mofo Keng. Uh, he is a, a black photographer but he also 20 or 30 years ago, he started to collect and make an archive of uh, photographs of uh, black bourgeois people. So in these kind of studio portraits in bourgeois, uh, and of course they existed. But until then, the official archives had never been interested in that because black people were only archived in the official institutions as the natives eh, from an anthropological perspective, not as bourgeois people, like the, the white people. And uh, so he started to create his archive and to make in a way visible uh, those images, but also those black uh, yeah, bourgeois identities, which uh, were completely now, how do you say that? Ignored and invisible within the context of the uh, the official institutions. But then there's a second problem with the archive, and that is the moment you are in a way integrated into an archive, the moment when you are archived, you only exist under the kind of category under which you are archived. So never as a unique individual. And that's one of the reasons why I am also a little bit, uh, I have my doubts, uh, of how uh, sexual identities are being archived at the moment as L, uh, LHBTQ. Um, 
yeah, okay, when you do that, you are inside the archive, but you exist only uh, as a sexual identity. Yeah. Nothing else. Is that what you want? You see, that's one of the, I would say, the, uh, the archive is also completely confining. That's, a, yeah. that's the, the little bit, the, the, the problem almost. When you're outside the archive, you do not exist. But when you're inside the archive, you are very much confined by the category under which you are being archived. <laughs> and so in, at that moment, mm-hmm. from that perspective, it is you have perhaps more freedom when you escape outside the archive again. Yeah, I, I, in uh, my conversation with uh, Mika Ball in the uh, third episode, I shared my favorite line from her documentary Vera about this uh, yeah. uh, little girl. And at one point, her mother says, I don't think it's necessary to have a clear identity. Yeah. And I, after that, I've been wondering, is it even possible to say, well, I don't really. So yeah. it's it's a lot of focus on, okay, so let's create extra categories yeah. or let's acknowledge these categories, which could be a very productive step as well. But is it even possible in our society to yeah. say, well, I don't really want to have a clear identity. I don't really feel the need to yeah. be oh, in an but that, And I think, especially nowadays, whereas when uh, yeah, identity politics is uh, no, the most important thing people, a lot of people can imagine, I think it is extremely confining and it would be very liberating not to have a clear identity. Yes, <laughs> I completely agree with uh, you or with this woman in uh, this film. Yes. But of course, it, it is a kind of luxury luxury to say that. Yes, because you, you are not always in charge of no. your cultural identity. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So, but this new project is all about productive archiving. Yeah. And that is interesting because, uh, uh, as I explained already, that although thinking about archiving and the archive that came out uh, of my work on Holocaust and trauma. Mm. And uh, so it's not that there is suddenly uh, I was bored and started to do something completely else. No. So that's a way you um, try to learn about the kind of world you live in for yourself, if I understand correctly, and what what you can do about it, what you can do maybe to make it a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I would like to add one more thing, because another thing what we have not talked about so far and what I've also been working on since the last is it, 10 years, and it is related to trauma, but still something very different, and that is uh, affect, mm. affect theory, and how does affect work? And that is, uh, and of course, this book on shame and masculinity is also about shame, and it's a major affect. And what, and although you know, sometimes people even conflate trauma and affect, as if trauma is an affect, and I don't think that, but what trauma and affect have in common is that they go both in a way, yeah, they go beyond representation and beyond yeah. meaning making. So is affect, is that different than just saying emotion or how you feel yes. about something? I think affect for me is a kind of uh, yeah, intensity and that you have to process something when you experience affect, when you have to pro, you have to do something with it. Yeah, you can ignore it, but you can process it into uh, 
an emotion, but you can also process it into, like uh, Deleuze, for instance, says, it shocks to thoughts. So mm. you can also process it into this kind of new way of thinking, a kind of thinking which is not conventional, but uh, something new. So, uh, so affect and emotion, no. We will, uh, uh, an emotion is an affect uh, after the affect has been processed. So it is a qualified affect. So an affect is something that, that touches you, that you maybe that you feel, but that uh, is raw, unprocessed, and maybe uh, yeah. instigates you to make try to make sense of it? Uh, yeah, in a way, we should not talk about affect because affect uh, suggests that there, that it is a thing you can describe and that it's yeah. a kind of entity. But I think there is also the, you should you know it's better to talk about an affective transmission. Mm. So it is always something which takes place between a text and you as a reader, or to, mm. between one person and another person. And um, yeah, so it is a kind of. Uh, transmission and it is not an entity it's a process is that dependent on the discursive order as well like experience or does it go no, beyond no that? and i think that is exactly what it has in common with uh trauma hmm. it is it both is in a way by uh you say trauma is a kind of failed experience because it could not be mediated by the discursive order, the symbolic order. Whereas affect is indeed, an affective transmission can result in thinking, and, and that means that it is, in a way, also, uh, how do you say, that processed into the symbolic or the discursive order, but uh, not by definition. The, the, the transmission itself is outside that domain. But, mm -hmm. but it influences that domain all the time. Mm -hmm. It has impacts on that domain. I'm thinking about maybe this is a completely, um, how do you say it, banal example, but I'm thinking about Lord of the Rings, where, yeah. where uh, Sam and Frodo are in Mordor and they're having these horrible experiences. And then uh, Sam is looking at the stars and he has this moment yeah. Where I don't uh, I don't even know the exact quote, but what I remember from it is that he's he's walking there and he has this moment where he's touched by something and it gives him the strength to go on. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. Uh, yeah, uh, you can say this is a kind of uh, little story about affective transmission. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, great. So that's something maybe to pay attention to. Uh, yeah. What what happens to us in our daily lives that uh, that touches you, that you don't necessarily can make, you cannot necessarily make sense of it, but uh, it is still there. Yeah, indeed. It is real and it affects our lives and also it affects the way we live our lives. Yes. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me today. It was a pleasure, really. And thank you for listening. Sorry, I butchered the Lord of the Rings quote at the end. We were speaking about affect, a shock to thought. Let me read it to you. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. 
The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Oscar Wilde wrote, We're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. After spending some time in the gutter today, next month, let's look at the stars. I will speak with astrophysicist Vincent Icke. For more episodes and ways to support this podcast, go to livefromplatuscave.com. I hope to see you again next month.